0: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has posed a major test for the United Nations. And while some parts of the UN system have admirably risen to the occasion, the Security Council has not. The Security Council is the primary UN organ responsible for maintaining international peace and security, and like the US invasion of Iraq 19 years ago, the Security Council was again unable to stop one of its permanent, veto-wielding members from launching an unprovoked war. But while the Security Council has failed, other parts of the UN system have stepped up in a big way. The General Assembly has overwhelmingly condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine and voted to kick Russia off the Human Rights Council. Meanwhile, UN humanitarian agencies are at work both inside Ukraine and supporting Ukrainian refugees who have fled. On the line with me to assess the UN's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine is Richard Gowan, the UN Director of the International Crisis Group. We kick off discussing a recent diplomatic mission by the UN Secretary General to both Moscow and Kyiv before having a longer conversation about how this major international crisis is impacting diplomacy at the United Nations. And towards the end of the conversation, Richard Gowan discusses a recent paper he wrote outlining the opportunities that this crisis may present for reforming the United Nations. I always appreciate speaking with Richard Gowan, who is one of my most frequent guests on this podcast. I've spoken to him on this show many times over the years, and I suspect you also appreciate learning his insights. And as always, feel free to reach out to me if you have suggestions of people you'd like me to interview or topics you'd like me to cover. I get a lot of my ideas for episodes directly from those emails. So I really do encourage you to reach out to me. You can use the contact button on globaldispatches.org or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Thanks. All right, now here is my conversation with Richard Gowan, UN Director for the International Crisis Group. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. It was on April 26 that Guterres visited Moscow, to the chagrin of many, it should be noted, not least of whom were the Ukrainians who did not like the optics of the Secretary General meeting in Moscow before Kyiv. Uh, but during his meeting with Putin, according to a UN statement, Guterres apparently secured an agreement, quote, in principle, for the humanitarian evacuation of civilians stranded in that steel plant in Mariupol. Now, I don't know about about you, Richard, but I have to admit that at the time that quote, in principle, part of the statement seemed to be doing a lot of work. Uh, and it seemed not likely to me, at least that Putin would follow through a position informed. I should note that while Guterres was in Kyiv visiting with Zelensky and visiting that mass atrocity site in Bucha, uh, the Russians launched their first you know missile attacks in Kyiv. In weeks. Uh, Yet we are now speaking on Tuesday, May 10th. And just a few days ago, it was announced that all civilians, about 500 or so, have been evacuated from that steel plant in an operation overseen by the UN and the ICRC. So, what does that whole sort of episode tell you about the possibilities, maybe limitations of UN diplomacy right now?
1: Well, I think it was a significant win for the Secretary General. You know, Guterres had faced a lot of criticism for failing to go to Moscow before the war. He did seem very cautious about challenging Putin over what he was planning back in January and February. And then for the first two months of the war, he spoke out against Russia's actions, but he seemed diplomatically pretty marginal and there was a rising tide of unease i think amongst un officials that the organisation and its top official were missing in action during a uh, you know a catastrophic war for the un system and so guterres went really i think to deal with that internal criticism and we weren't sure what he would be able to deliver Now, there's a lot of gossip about the trip, but what we are hearing that seems credible is that while Guterres actually had a very difficult conversation with Foreign Minister Lavrov, which went on for hours, during which Lavrov offered very few concessions, Putin was quite pragmatic. And Putin did take this idea of the evacuation from Azovstal pretty seriously. Uh, Similarly, when Guterres got to Kiev, uh, you know there was a lot of concern that Zelensky, who has been very negative towards the UN uh, for obvious reasons during the war, uh, would not want to sort of deal deal with him or accept any any proposals that Russia had signed off on. But that wasn't the case. Zelensky actually seized on this um, opportunity to get the civilians out of Azov-style, Um in, in a very eager fashion. And so despite the incident with the missile, um, which UN officials are now very keen to play down, Guterres came away feeling that he'd been able to do some real business with both Putin and Zelensky and events have shown that both sides were, were being sincere in offering to allow for this very specific civilian evacuation and so suddenly Guterres looks a tiny bit more like a real diplomatic player of Ukraine than he he did a month ago
0: so do you think there is opportunity or potential to seize upon that sort of diplomatic win that resulted in the evacuation of 500 civilians uh from that besieged steel plant to you know using or enhancing the secretary general's role as quote good offices in a more meaningful way either through perhaps other evacuations or to play an increased you know diplomatic role more broadly between kyiv and moscow
1: i think we have to be a little cautious uh, last week as it was clear that, that the evacuations were working um, Norway and Mexico, who are both elected members of the Security Council, uh, floated a council statement that was very brief, but did encourage Guterres to continue his good offices regarding the conflict. Now, Norway had actually tabled a similar text for discussion in the first weeks of the war, but other council members had not been willing to support it. This time, all of the council was actually willing to ag- agree to this text, but Russia said, we don't want a reference to good offices. And so the compromise language was efforts. The Security Council uh, welcomed the Secretary General's efforts um, over Ukraine. Now, to most outsiders, this little language point may seem obscure and unimportant. But it, it does matter because what the Russians were signaling was, yes, they're happy to have Guterres engaged. Yes, they're willing to talk to him, but they don't want him to start thinking that he's going to be the mediator in this war. They don't want to imply that Guterres, um is sort of the primary peacemaker in the conflict. So I think that what we take away from that is that Guterres has more openings for shuttle diplomacy. He has got a toehold in discussions with Moscow and, um, with the Ukrainians, uh, but he's still not positioned to be sort of the big peacemaker. Uh, right. it's more likely he'll be focusing as, as he was in the recent weeks on, uh, humanitarian diplomacy and, and efforts to protect civilians, um, rather than sort of work out a long-term deal.
0: And you know, it is significant that this UN Security Council statement uh was the first, you know, statement, act of unanimity uh by the Security Council since the conflict began, correct?
1: Yes, and although it's it's very thin, it's just a few lines long.
0: Yeah, it's like four and, sentences.
1: <laughs> exactly. I read it before it, we spoke. I mean, you you could have And a lot of it is
0: preambulatory.
1: Exactly. You could have read it while while I was taking a breath, frankly. Uh, And, you know, it doesn't call out Russia for its aggression in contrast to previous uh, resolutions from the General Assembly. It doesn't even say war. But still, the fact it exists at all um, is pretty remarkable uh, because, you know, tensions in the council have been running extraordinarily high. Uh, There's a very, very toxic mood, especially between... Uh, the Russians, the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, and so the fact that they could even a- agree on a, a slip of paper you know, is, is encouraging for Guterres. Um And, you know, hopefully he will pick that up. And uh, indeed, we've seen him pick it up because uh, just now he's been in Moldova um, talking about the need to support Moldova while there's a war in, in neighboring Ukraine. You know, he does now seem to be trying to engage more around this conflict than was the case during the first couple of months.
0: Interesting, not to get like too deep in the weeds, but do you suspect that his trip to Moldova was only arranged after the passage of that UN Security Council statement endorsing his efforts?
1: It's really unclear. And actually, we know that even much earlier in the conflict, when it wasn't clear that the Guterres would be welcomed um, by Putin or Zelensky. UN officials had been saying, well, maybe a visit to Moldova is, is an alternative option. So uh, we don't really know if, if this was something that was on the cards for a while or whether it was a, a last minute decision. But, you know, it definitely looks different now. I mean, there's definitely a sense that Guterres is seized, seized of, of the conflict and he's going to be continuing with this shuttle diplomacy around the region although you know he's also just been in africa he was in he was in nigeria so he's also trying to show that he can keep track of other uh, situations in other regions too even while doing more around ukraine
0: and maybe also just worth noting that while guterres was in moldova the russians launched their first major uh barrage of, of missiles and artillery at odessa a port city not far from moldova um Before we dive more deeply into Security Council dynamics, I just would love to have you sketch more broadly what other parts of the UN system, particularly the humanitarian actors, have been doing in and around Ukraine and the humanitarian response uh, to the crisis in Ukraine thus far, like what we're seeing today.
1: Well, I think it is worth emphasizing something which has got lost in a lot of coverage of UN diplomacy around the war, which is that despite the you know, overarching paralysis of the Security Council, other parts of the UN are, are actually stepping up quite well in response to what is going on between Russia and Ukraine. You know, We've seen that in the General Assembly, where you've had big majorities of countries voting to condemn the war. Uh, the Human Rights Council... Is holding another special session, I think, on Ukraine this week. It's launched a commission of inquiry that should be able to gather some pretty compelling evidence about war crimes in in Ukraine. The International Criminal Court, the ICC, is, is also investigating the situation. And we're hearing that even some U.S. senators who are normally extremely sceptical of the ICC uh, because they worry that it would investigate the U.S. or, or Israel are actually sort of telling the Biden administration to back up what the court is doing. You know, the humanitarians are there too. And obviously, they're getting a lot of credit for the work with the ICRC in terms of getting uh, civilians out of Mariupol. But, you know, organizations, including the World Health Organization, are, are on the ground they're, they're trying to get convoys through to uh, cities sort of under fire. There, there are over a thousand UN staff in Ukraine right now. I, I think primarily working on the humanitarian response. Mm-hmm. So you know, this is, you know, this is a this is a failure for the UN system. It's a failure for the UN Security Council. Uh, it's been a huge test for the UN Secretary General. But other parts of the system are operating as best they can against this very bleak backdrop.
0: Uh, So the security council has obviously taken a a very big and significant reputational hit. Uh, And earlier you said just how grim and um, toxic the atmosphere seems to be at the security council right now. Are there any like anecdotes or um, things you can share that sort of illustrate just how bad things have gotten at the security council?
1: Well, I mean, you know, diplomats say without exception that the mood is foul. And it's worth noting that quite a lot of Western uh, diplomats are now under instructions to only talk to the Russians when it's absolutely necessary. Uh, so you know, basic day-to-day interactions between Russia and other council members are impeded. Uh, I mean, I understand that There's only been, I think, one private discussion amongst the permanent members of the council at at a very senior level, that is the ambassadorial level since the War began, uh, and that was on uh, North Korea. Other than that, there's been basically no top-level coordination amongst the, the P5. And, yeah, I mean, all council members, including... Council members from from regions that are not so directly affected by the war just say that you know they can see the mood turning sour what's what's striking is that this hasn 't actually completely disrupted the work of uh, of the Security Council you know, despite this very high level of mutual animosity uh the western powers and and Russia have been able to compromise. Uh, to pass resolutions on a whole range of other issues unrelated to Ukraine, including Afghanistan, including Libya, including Somalia. So the the mood is bad, but there is still some sense that everyone wants to keep council diplomacy going on other files, which is not something that we thought was guaranteed when the war began. I I mean, there, there was a scenario in which simply the mood would be so bad that it would be impossible to do any deals on on any issues. That's interesting to hear, because that, to me, was always one of the key variables,
0: whether like the day-to-day work of the Security Council, which often has nothing to do with with uh, Ukraine or, or uh, hot conflicts in Europe, you know, things like renewing mandates of peacekeeping missions in Africa, whether or not that kind of routine day-to-day work would be disrupted. And you're telling me that so far, it really hasn't in a significant way.
1: No, Not really. I mean, look, a lot of non-Western diplomats are saying that they feel that, you know, the agenda of the council has has been uh, hijacked uh, and dominated by what's going on in Ukraine. I mean, in essence, there's at least one meeting on Ukraine every week. Uh, the U.S. currently holds the rotating presidency of the council and is making sure that there's at least one Ukraine event per week. Uh, there's an event coming up on international food security and Ukraine. Uh, there's a discussion of uh technology and conflict that the US is hosting that is bound to involve a lot of talk about russian cyber uh cyber attacks you know ukraine is is sort of a constant drumbeat in in council discussions uh, but there 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 has been a conscious decision i think uh by the us and in its allies to make sure that the UN machinery at least keeps turning over on other files that um, uh, you know, the, the very, very bad mood doesn't infect discussions of, uh, of African affairs um, Mm -hmm. or uh, other parts of the world too badly. It does pop up now and again. Um, The Colombian president was here about a month ago, I think. And, not in the Security Council, but outside the council, he he made some condemnatory remarks about uh, Russia's war. And in response, Russia uh, blocked a Security Council statement uh, welcoming progress in, in the Colombian peace process. So, it, you know, it does flare up now and again, but it, it hasn't totally overwhelmed the body.
0: Uh, So it is around this time of year for the last few years that humanitarian agencies start to get exceedingly nervous that their last access point from Turkey to uh, Syria uh, will be closed. These are access points uh, that were uh, opened, created uh, by an act of the Security Council. What was it like almost in 2015? It was a while ago. But in subsequent years, uh, the Russians have sought to limit uh, humanitarian access through these border points and have limited sort of the number of of border crossings that they will allow uh, and the mandate for these resolutions essentially kind of expire one year from the time it was passed last enough I'm recalling correctly that usually happens like around June. I have to imagine and correct me if i'm wrong that we one perhaps fallout from the heightened tensions at the security council might mean that this last border crossing for humanitarian access from turkey to syria might indeed forever be closed what's your thinking on on that kind of precarious situation
1: Yes, and that is a a very concrete risk, and it's a very concrete risk that a lot of diplomats in New York are very, very aware of. I mean, as I said, it's been possible for council members to compromise on other files like Afghanistan and Libya. But the reality is that the the mandate for this cross-border aid into Syria that you're describing uh, was, especially last year, basically negotiated bilaterally between the US and the Russians, and then the council you know, took what the two powers had decided and, and put it into a resolution. Um, now, as far as we understand it, that US-Russia channel over Syria is now closed, and I don't think Russia will necessarily just veto uh, this crossing, but I think the Russians will demand a lot of concessions uh, from the US for... Uh, for keeping the mandate alive. Uh, you know, they probably sort of insist that more UN aid is sort of channeled through Syrian government mechanisms, for example. And I think it will be awfully difficult for the US to make major concessions of that type. And so that may well lead you to, to a veto of this mandate, which will, you know, lead to to a lot of suffering for the uh, Syrian civilians trapped in the Idlib pocket.
0: I and mean, and I should note that I have done episodes on that very specific issue of this podcast over the years, and I'll I'll refer people to it. I'll point, post links to it in in the show notes of this episode. You're describing just a very tense and precarious and and really toxic atmosphere at the Security Council. Obviously, this comes in the wake of like a sort of major geopolitical earthquake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, in the past, in times of like huge international earthquakes, tectonic shifts in how countries relate to each other and power shifts in in international affairs, we've seen big reforms of global governance, and of the international system. And you have this fascinating piece on the website of the International Crisis Group, in which you have a premise that I completely agree with, that the Russia's invasion of Ukraine is not a, quote, San Francisco moment, uh, referring to the diplomacy that led to the advent of the United Nations. Still, there are interesting and unique opportunities that this crisis brings for important reforms to the UN system nonetheless. Can you maybe describe your thinking in in reaching that specific conclusion? And then we'll go through some of the possibilities for reform that you outline in that piece on the crisis group's website.
1: Well, look, in, in this piece, which was originally a a lecture uh, actually for the Geneva Center for Security Policy, Uh, I I was trying to sort of confront a lot of talk that we've been hearing in the UN bubble, but also beyond that this crisis shows that we have to fundamentally rewrite the UN charter and fundamentally rewrite the rules of, of global governance. And, you know, the Ukrainians themselves have been pushing that narrative. Uh, Ukraine has been arguing that Russia should be expelled, at least from the Security Council, or perhaps from the UN altogether. We've, you know, we've heard a lot of um a lot of people come forward with uh good ideas for reforming the global system at, at this moment. And the reality is that I I just don't think this is likely to work out. There are a number of reasons for that. Um, the, the simplest reason is that Article 108 of the UN Charter says that you can't rewrite the Charter without uh, all of the permanent members agreeing. So Russia and China can, can block any changes they don't like. Um, you know, Beyond that, I, I don't actually think that we have seen a total collapse of the UN system for the reasons that we were just describing. I mean, the Security Council is is not totally defunct Uh, Other parts of the UN system, like the General Assembly, are actually quite active in response to to the war over Ukraine. So I, I, I just don't feel this is a moment where diplomatically or politically really massive UN reform is likely to arise, although the Council's failure over Ukraine sort of sits there alongside its failure over Rwanda as a condemnation of of the institution in in many ways um I, I mean what i think we're headed into is a period similar to the period after the iraq war in 2003 where for two years there was a lot of excited talk about security council reform uh in the un and in, in think tanks uh, all around the world uh, and then there were some improvements to the un at that moment like the foundation of the human rights council but the the sort of fundamental goal of security council reform proved entirely impossible and the security council remained just as it was before the invasion of Iraq and i think we're going to have a similar period of talk now with the security council will once again uh, prove quite resilient to change so in that context
0: uh there are some you know, perhaps opportunities for i don't know if you would call it incremental reform or other perhaps additive um, ways that the international system with the u n at its center can. Be nudged in a direction to deal with some common international challenges, and uh, the first possibility for reform, you cite, is shockproofing the international economy. Uh, what do you mean by that, and what opportunities might exist?
1: Well, this is this is one of the sort of curious things about the Ukrainian war, which is obviously it comes hard on the heels of COVID nineteen, and last year. Uh, Guterres put out a report called Our Common Agenda in which in essence he you know he tried to lay out a big picture vision of the future of multilateralism uh, and he tried to learn lessons from from Covid and his primary lesson from Covid was you know here was a crisis that strained supply chains you know led to uh you know, fears of, of major food shortages, in addition to all its, you know, medical effects, and and there wasn't any sort of central international uh, directorate that could, could deal with those global consequences um, of a disease outbreak. Now, fast forward to Ukraine, and actually, the Ukrainian war is having some surprisingly analogous effects on the international economy we're facing big food price spikes we're facing uh you know disorder in the energy markets uh, and you know overall the economy is going to take a huge hit just as it did over covid Uh, and i think guterres is starting to see that maybe you can join all the dots and uh, maybe set up some sort of new coordination mechanisms uh not as alternatives to the Security Council, but in parallel to the Security Council, um, which would be sort of mechanisms that would bring together key governments, the international financial institutions, aid agencies like the World Food Programme to manage these these shocks, and especially to help protect poorer countries from the consequences of of these huge shocks to an interconnected uh, global economy.
0: And another opportunity uh, you said, is tackling misinformation and disinformation. How is this an opportune moment uh, for international cohesion on, on that?
1: Well, again, there's a funny parallel between COVID and Ukraine. I mean, as you know, there was a huge amount of misinformation around COVID. There still is a huge amount of misinformation around COVID. Uh, and the UN set up a number of online projects to try and counter that misinformation that are generally thought to have worked quite well, um, at least where you know, people listen to the UN. Uh, so the, you know, the UN has been working on uh, sort of cooperating with uh, tech companies and so forth to fight misinformation about the pandemic. And I think there is some interest in the UN now about whether it's possible to transfer some of those lessons to the flood of misinformation that is pouring out you know, through social media about what's going on in Ukraine. Now, this doesn't mean that you set up some sort of UN ministry for truth, but it could be that, you know, the UN can work more with Facebook, more with Twitter and other uh, other similar platforms uh, just to try and moderate content, to try and you know, identify hate speech and conspiratorial speech. Um, and, you know, the UN, which still has a global reputation for impartiality, uh, could sort of have some comparative advantage in identifying what is true and what is not in a very, very murky international media environment.
0: The the third opportunity, which I was kind of surprised to, to see included in your list, because I've been at this for a long time, and it's been hard uh, for me to see much project, progress on arms control, but you, you mentioned arms control and confidence building after Ukraine. What opportunities right now do you see for cohesion on arms control?
1: I don't see very many opportunities for cohesion on arms control, but I see a need for the UN and specifically the UN Secretary General to at least start opening up some conversations about the really awful state of international arms control and you know the, the lack of security transparency mechanisms uh, worldwide that have become very, very obvious around the Ukrainian situation. I mean, the the reality is that a lot of the uh, international arms control mechanisms that were set up in the later Cold War and after the Cold War have now fallen apart. Um, We're in an environment where a lot of states are being tempted to proliferate with nuclear weapons. We're in an environment where information sharing between governments on security issues is, is declining fast. And it seems to me that uh, the UN Secretary General cannot magically fix all these problems. He cannot negotiate nuclear deals between the p five. But he can at least use his convening power and he can at least use the expertise of the UN's disposal to start some conversations about what 21st century arms control needs to look like in a very distrustful environment. And I think that's as much part of the Secretary General's security mandate as going to to Moscow was part of his security mandate. Just as with going to Moscow, it may not work out immediately or as, as well as you would like. But Guterres sort of needs to do this because we live in an increasingly scary environment and you need to face up to that. Uh,
0: Lastly, how will we know if we're making any progress on these three discrete areas of potential opportunities for reform?
1: Well, so as part of this process that Guterres kicked off with his report, Our Common Agenda, uh, the UN is going to be hosting a summit in 2023 with a rather grand title of the Summit for the Future. And now this summit is going to focus on many things, uh, including development, climate change, inequality. But what Guterres wants to do is bring together leaders in September 2023 and um, sort of have a big discussion about the state of the world. Uh, he's also sort of starting to think about his own legacy as he uh, approaches the, the the latter stage of his career as Secretary General and there's a sort of a bunch of parallel un thinking and drafting processes going on with un officials sort of working on what's being called a new agenda for peace that might address some of the issues i've just been talking about uh and you know these will all converge in in this summit for the future and so that will be the you know that will be the moment when we can see whether all the sort of hopes and fears that we're talking about today sort of coming out of covid and coming out of the ukrainian experience will lead to serious uh, improvements to the way the un system is working or whether there just isn't any real political energy there
0: uh well richard thank you so much as always for your time this was very helpful and i encourage everyone to read your report it was great thank you very much All right. Thank you all for listening. And thanks as always to Richard. I always love chatting with Richard. uh, And uh, we usually catch up a couple times a year, typically around the UN General Assembly in September. And I suspect we'll be speaking again soon. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye.